everyone, welcome back to the second episode of the Core 10 series brought to you by the Uttering Engineers, a podcast created by engineering students for engineering students. My name is Patricia, and today I am joined by Hatain, who is a first year ESS representative who some of you already know from a previous episode. I'm happy to uh, introduce Dr. Dan. Um, Dr. Dan has been a professor who's been teaching Engineering 202, uh, Engineering Statics, for many years now. Um, Dr. Dan, would you like to uh, talk a bit more about what 202 is? Sure. So 202 or ENG 202 is a first-year common core course in our engineering program. It is usually offered in the winter term and uh, it consists usually of four sections based on the large number of students who take this course. Um, in terms of logistics, it's usually uh, three lectures per week and one tutorial. Uh, there is no labs and it is a prerequisite for the civil engineering students who want to go into second year. So in terms of the topic, it's a mechanics course and statics means we are looking at bodies that are at rest. And that's something that we are really interested in in civil engineering. We usually don't want our buildings to move. So all the forces that we apply, we have to make sure there's some sort of balancing each other and are in equilibrium. And that's what this course is about. So um, usually we start with uh, an overview of what types of forces and loads we have. For example, um, we have gravitational loads. If you think about a structure, it has a weight. So that self-weight is a force or several forces that need to be considered. We have wind forces. That's usually a horizontal force pushing against uh, an outside wall of a building. We have snow loads. So we have several types of forces. Some are called point loads. They're really acting at a specific point. Others are more like distributed over an area. Others are a volume force that are some sort of occur from the gravitation forces. So once we know these different types of forces, we can then summarize them to all two point loads. And then we apply them to our bodies. In engineering, we usually call it more like systems. And if we go civil specific, then it would be like our beams and columns, the structural elements that we use when we build, um, let's say a house or something like this. So we apply them and we apply those forces. And um, then our main objective is we need to balance them. That's why we have a foundation. So we need to determine how much forces, let's say, from the foundation or from the supports needs to be activated to some sort of have the overall system in balance. And um, that's something that you will learn in this course. What are the so-called reaction forces? Um, and once you have that, then the next step is we go into happening what is happening inside a specific system. So let's say if you're looking at a, a straight beam, that is supported on the left and right, we would like to know at a specific point within the beam, what are the forces that this beam needs to, or the material needs to be able to carry. That is important once you go into second, third force here, we need to determine the size of this beam. So we need to know how much force is in the beam. And that's the first step in statics to determine internal forces internal normal force, shear force, bending moment. So these are all forces. You will see the details in the course. 
and um, you will be able through these uh, through the force equilibrium equations that basically maintains the overall balance of the system that um, you can determine those forces at any point in a system. And that is pretty much what this course is about. Uh, in terms of the problems that you will solve, you have a so-called 2D or plane problems. So everything, everything is happening in a 2D plane. Uh, those are usually a little bit easier, especially when it comes to the geometry that you need to apply. Um, but you also have three-dimensional systems. And then it would be a, a 3D analysis that usually leads a little bit more to vector analysis and a more formal approach of statics. Thanks for the um, brief introduction to the course. Uh, I, I had the pleasure to have you before COVID last year. Um, and can you talk more about how long you taught the course, uh, kind of who you are, a background of to, to kind of yourself, um, just so that everyone who doesn't know you. Sure. Let's start with the background. So I grew up in Germany. I, um, my undergrad, I got it in civil engineering. And my focus was on uh, structural engineering and geotechnical engineering. So basically, I was focusing on designing concrete structures, steel structures, timber structures, as well as the required foundation. And um, after I finished my undergrad degree, I came to, uh, to Canada to do my PhD. I was doing it here in Calgary in the Department of Civil Engineering. And I started working on more like uh, maintenance of structural systems. What happens after the system is designed, it's built. We have to, through the life cycle, we have to maintain it. So every once in a while, we have to go out. We need to inspect the system. We need to see what is the damage that we have, how much damage we have. And then we need to decide, okay, when do we go out and do a repair? Or maybe we replace a section. So this was more like my focus on um, for my PhD. Uh, there was also quite an, uh, a focus on doing this on pipelines. And that brought me closer to the oil and gas sector. Um, I finished my PhD at the end of 2011. And um, I then was for another six months postdoc here in Calgary. And I then moved to Aberdeen in Scotland. And I started working for a major oil and gas company as a pipeline engineer. So I was doing exactly what I was doing for as, a, as a PhD student. Um, you have pipelines, um, over time there's corrosion, there's fatigue, you have all sorts of uh, deterioration going on. And um, through inspections and maintenance, we try to maintain the safety of the systems and um, maintain the, uh, the lifetime of the system. So I was doing that for um, almost two years. And then I came back in 2014. And then I joined the Department of Civil Engineering as an assistant professor. So um, in terms of teaching, I've been, uh, based on my background, I've been mostly teaching structural related courses. So I started with a first year structural analysis course. So that's basically what you take in the first year statics, the equivalent course in year four. So I was teaching that in my first two years. Um, I then moved into second year. I was teaching the follow-up course of statics, um, which is so-called mechanics of solids, where you go into stresses and strains. I was teaching that for two years. Um, I then went back to fourth year teaching uh, an uncertainty course. 
And uh, for the last two to three years, I have been in first year teaching ENG G202 statics. So at first time I taught it as a spring course. And then uh, the following year I was coordinating the, um, the, um, the, the full cohort in the winter term. And then I was doing it in 2020 again. So that is my teaching background. Uh, in terms of research, um, I was hired to do um, research on pipeline integrity and risk assessment or risk assessment in general on, on structural and civil engineering structural systems. So um, again, that comes back to um, having the system built, having the system in service, we need to maintain the integrity. So then one of the main questions I'm focusing on is right now, when should we go out and inspect? How should we inspect the system? And um, what type of maintenance? When is the maintenance required? So basically trying to maintain the oil and gas as well as uh, regular infrastructure systems that we have. That's a lot of, uh, in a nutshell, my, my research. That will be helpful. Um, I, I actually have a question coming up later on uh, about your research in particular, uh, that in particular, but I, I don't want to ask it now. Um, but I want to keep on track with, with the um, talking about 202 as a first year foundational course. Aside from to satisfy the requirements from the Canadian Engineering Accreditation Board, in your opinion, is this course an important foundational course for all engineering students, regardless of major? Uh, just like say first year chemistry is, or do you think this course is just something you have to get through for students who don't want to go into civil engineering? Right. Um, I'm pretty sure probably a lot of students think like that, that's, oh, I may want to go to electrical engineering. Uh, I never worry about static, so I just have to get through this course. Um, in my opinion, I think um, yes, we teach or our focus is on statics, but what we primarily teach is problem solving. You get a problem that, which usually is just shown as a picture with some sort of the dimensions of the system. And based on the nature of course, of course, it's more like related to a mechanical engineering system or a civil engineering system. And, um, but then from that point, getting to your final answer, there's some sort of an approach behind it. And that's the problem solving part. And that's really the true intention behind this course is like, okay, given what you have, how do you slowly take away the things that you don't need that are not really relevant to get to the core of the problem, then formulate a mathematical model and then trying to solve the model. So that's what we try to teach. And so in my opinion, I think this course would be beneficial for all engineering students, but I fully acknowledge in terms of applications, it is really tailored towards the civil engineering and mechanical engineering students. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that statement about problem solving, because uh, I, I know in high school, there's sort of uh, a common phrase I would hear is uh, physics is about plug and chug. Uh, it's just plugging into equations, but uh, it, doing 202 uh, this semester, I can definitely say it's it's a lot of um, problem solving, and I and I think that part of the course makes it a lot more interesting because it's using the sort of the prior knowledge you have given a new scenario with uh, 
applications of the of the principles you've learned and then trying to find solutions to that and that's what engineering is all about so uh, whatever major you go into i think having those problem solving skills is is a must so i definitely agree with that statement yeah i agree too um so in my i don't know in your cohort today but in my first year uh cohort i you know a lot of people you know i i know that many people don't want to go into civil engineering and so they're just breathing through the course just completing each weekly quiz just getting it done um but i think it's important what dr dan said that in the in the in the basic sense every engineering course first year or otherwise is just a way to problem solve in a, in a kind of different way it's just practice to problem solving in different situations basically and that's i think it's very important to kind of develop your own style of problem solving even though you might not even care about the application but it's it's a good it's just a good practice to to doing things um differently even if you're not very comfortable with it and what <laughs> dr dan said uh about you you understand that um it it might not be tailored for everyone because the application is so specific to civil. Uh, that is a relief to hear for students who did not get an A in that course. Of course, I might or might not be talking about myself, but thank you for that. <laughs> um, so as we all know, a lot of the courses have changed a lot um, because of COVID-19. Um, it, it's been a drastic um, difference in how students approach lectures and as well as uh, learn. So we just wanted to ask you, Dr. Dan, um, how has, um, how has the, have you gotten an opportunity to teach uh, 202 uh, with COVID-19 and how has that sort of changed the style of, um, of, of teaching and do you dislike it or like it or do you feel like um, it didn't quite make the adaptation that it needed to? So um, I was teaching it um, the last time in the winter term 2020. And this is when we moved from in-class teaching uh, to online teaching in the middle of the term. So I was the course coordinator, so I was heavily involved in making that transition happening basically over a weekend. Um, as those of you who have taken a class with me, uh, I mean, you know, I try to sometimes uh, bring a broomstick or a cable to class, so it's a little bit hands-on. I sometimes ask students to come to the front, join me at the blackboard, and uh, we try to illustrate some of the basic concepts. Of course, when you do this um, online, and I was then teaching the, the rest of the term um, online uh, using Zoom, um, that was not possible. I tried to do this here in my office at home by illustrating or, and trying to be some sort of equivalent to what I do in the classroom. But I don't think I got really the quality across that I would have gotten in actually being in a physical classroom on campus. In terms of the content, I don't think there was any change. I don't think there's any change this year. So the same content is covered and has been covered for many, many years. Uh, I think the major change is how the lectures are delivered. Of course, it's all online. Uh, it may not be as interactive. I've other, heard other classes that are, might be a little bit smaller where there is a lot of discussion going on because you now also have uh, a chat function where you can write down your question. You don't have to actually ask it personally. So um, it can really work both ways. And from my experience, I saw that as well. I got less questions when it was in class 
But then when I was teaching it online, I saw I had the chat on the right and there was constantly questions coming up. It even came to the point where I was like, I really tried to, to, to stay on top of this, but there were too many questions. So um, if I would have to teach it again, maybe next year, um, I would uh, like to have, let's say, a teaching assistant with me who some sort of can monitor the chat and some sort of try to reply to questions directly or bring them up and ask on students' behalf. So it's really streamlined and um, it doesn't distract me as much from observing the chat and teaching the material at the same time. I usually teach all my lectures live and then they will be recorded. So um, having a good performance is, is really important. As well as having a lot of input from students, it really makes a lecture come alive. It's, uh, we see right away, okay, what are some of the issues that are maybe were not as well explained. So um, that would really help um, if we can continue uh, like that. Um, we also see a major change in terms of how we assess the students. I mean, usually we had in-class midterms, we had in-class uh, final exams. Um, now this is all online. Last year we had it set up in D2L in form of quizzes. These quizzes were some sort of stage, so you had to pass one stage to get to the next. And um, that also helped that an early mistake was not carried forward through the entire problem. I think overall that was, as an online exam, it was a very good concept and um, I, I really liked it and I got very good feedback from the students. So um, there have been definitely some changes. Um, overall, um, I personally prefer to teach um, a lecture on campus in class. I think um, it really helps to um, better uh, get a feeling on where the class is, on where, um, on how the material is delivered and how the, the students receive the material. This is a little bit of a gap that I see right now with online teaching because I may see two or three students in, the, uh, in, a, um, in front of me because mostly I have my teaching screen with the notes. So I'm not really seeing the full class. And I think that is really something that um, doesn't, or where online teaching still needs to be improved or I would have to improve it when I'm teaching the next class to think about methods to overcome these challenges. I agree with engagement during COVID it has been so different that I, even in my courses now, I see that uh, on D12, um, there's at least like 78 or 80 questions on the discussion posts every week. And I don't, I don't know how my profs are handling that. Uh, and ILS, because we're doing like an integrated course, um, that's multiplied by five different courses. So all, every question for five different courses is in one D12 discussion box, which makes it so crowded. But there is engagement that I, I, I don't think I've ever seen before in, in a class setting where, you know, 70 people or 60 people are raising their hands at once. Um, for the same material for the same week. So the engagement I think is very positive. But uh, the next question is, is NG202 a reflection of higher level courses in civil engineering? Oh, that's a good question. So um, each of the departments, each of the programs have more or less a course in, core in, in, in the first year in Common Core. 
And statics is considered, okay, this is the civil engineering course. And then students go to this course and yeah, as we said earlier, you deal with, it's, it's basically a mechanics course, you deal with forces, try to find equilibrium and all that. And then students walk out and say, okay, this is civil engineering. And um, I strongly disagree. I mean, it is a portion of civil engineering, but civil engineering nowadays is much more than that, which is there's a lot of topics, lots of areas that are not covered that have absolutely nothing to do with statics and they still belong to civil engineering. So let me maybe briefly give you an overview on how civil engineering is uh, structured in, in, at the University of Calgary on all the different areas we have. So the course that you take, Eng202, that is the fundamental course for if you want to become a so-called structural or geotechnical engineer. It's basically if you designed buildings, if it's concrete, steel, timber, it doesn't matter. Uh, the principles you learn in uh, statics, those are the one that you will see in the higher level courses. So it's truly a foundational course for this discipline. The same if you want to work with soil, if you want to work with foundations, um, it's also a very foundational course. But aside from that, we have a lot of areas in civil engineering that are not or hardly related to statics. So let's say, for example, uh, transportation engineering. That is an area where you think about road networks, you design railway networks, airport facilities. And you don't really worry so much about the actual physical structure, but more like, okay, how much space do you need? How much lanes do you need on the highway? What are the speed limits? How does the, um, what profile, what road profile do you use? So that is an area that is not covered at all in, in statics, but it is a very important area uh, right now, especially with uh, all the improvements we see from going to electric cars, going to cars that are more like connected and can speak to each other. So uh, that is really an upcoming area. Another one is project management. Every project you have in civil engineering, at some point it needs to be executed. Usually you have to build something. So there you need engineers who need to supervise this. So you need to develop a cost estimation. How much does it cost to build it? You need a schedule for how long it takes. And then you need engineers in the field who supervise all the workers who make sure it runs smoothly. And that's in essence what project management is about. Also something that you don't see in statics. We then have the areas of water resources and environmental engineering. So water resources that usually focusing on providing enough fresh water for all our towns and cities to make sure that throughout the entire year, uh, there is enough clean water available. There is never a shortage. They also deal with um, flood mitigation. So if you have these heavy rainfalls that create uh, floods on the roads and all that, so they are working on that, trying to mitigate those effects. Environmental engineering, also part of it is urban planning, is then what happens with um, the wastewater. We need an infrastructure system for, okay, once you're done with the water, flows down the drain, well then it needs to be cleaned again, it needs to be put back into the river or wherever it's coming from. 
So there is an entire infrastructure behind this that you don't see. Most of it is under roads, all the pipes that you need for that. Uh, there are some sort of wastewater uh, cleaning facilities that need to be developed, designed, maintained. Uh, the same in terms of um, garbage removal. I mean, that is also something that uh, civil engineer and environmental engineers are looking after that is, what do we do with all the garbage? How are in terms of the different recycling streams, uh, landfill designing those and so on. So in civil engineering, we is, over the years, it really grew from where it originally came from, let's say 100, 150 years ago, where really the focus was more like the structures type or the, the, the structural analysis and then project management, it really grew into a very diverse field. Unfortunately, you don't really see all these different areas in your first year. Yeah, I think that's a very good point I want to emphasize um, because as a first year, when you're trying to decide your major, uh, you often just sort of associate a major with one course. Like, for example, uh, civil engineering is uh, statics, uh, but I, I just want to emphasize that point that the major is a lot more than just one course. Um, and for example, as Dr. Dan was saying, uh, project management, if you're if you're interested in a different side of uh, civil engineering, but you didn't perhaps like uh, statics as much, I, I say don't be discouraged. Uh, and I think I mentioned this uh, in a previous episode as well. Uh, that it's a lot bigger than just one course. So there's a lot of really interesting things that uh, Dr. Dan just talked about. And if those things are interesting, uh, then I think civil engineering, despite if you didn't enjoy 202, uh, might still be a very good option for you. Um, so Dr. Dan, you've worked both in industry and academia. Um, why did you decide to become a professor um, and is there any, any advice you would like to give to students who might be considering this career path as well? So after I finished my PhD, for me, it was very clear I would like to go into industry. And at that point, I was convinced I would stay probably in industry for the rest of my life. So um, what happened is, as I said, I moved to Aberdeen. I started working for an oil and gas company and I really enjoyed the work. It was very new. You really had uh, direct projects in front of you. You know, okay, this is a problem that needs to be solved. So it was very different than from doing research, being very on the theoretical side. Now you could really apply your knowledge. And I really enjoyed that part. Uh, in my case, it also involved uh, a lot of traveling to different business units across the globe. So um, I was uh, a lot on the road. And to be honest, a little bit more than I personally liked. And um, in the first one and a half, two years, it was very nice. I mean, you fly around, you're for a few weeks there, then you come back to the main office, you work and so on. And then um, this new position in civil engineering came up and I applied and um, I was elected. So then I had to make the decision, okay, what do I do? And um, I decided to go back to the university, go back to academia and become a professor. So um, because it gave me a flexibility that I don't or usually you don't have in a company. Right now I have a flexibility in terms of the research that I do. It's like I can shift it a little bit in this direction or in the other direction. 
It is quite a mixture of teaching, usually for two terms. So we teach most of our courses in fall and the winter term. So then uh, most of the academics were focused just on uh, delivering the courses and, and the teaching aspect of our job. And then usually in the summertime, that's when we focus more on research. We do a little bit traveling, we go to conferences, we present our work, we write journal papers. And um, having this variety, having this flexibility, that was ultimately my, um, my goal. I said, okay, it fits better to where I would like to be. And um, I also or always liked uh, working with uh, students. I've been from early years on, I was always a math tutor for many, many years. So um, I liked working with students. I liked uh, giving lectures. So um, I thought, okay, after two years in industry, um, industry time was then relatively short. Um, I made the switch back to uh, becoming a professor here in Calgary. Is there any regrets that come with that decision? Maybe not every every day, but sometimes are there any kind of... To be honest, I don't have any regrets. I really enjoy uh, my work I, every day. I'm very happy to, to start my day. I mean, I've been now um, in my home office for almost a full year. Um, I really hope soon we can go back and uh, to be in our offices at, uh, on campus. Um, I always had lots of interactions with my colleagues. There are a lot of discussions. You think about problems, you have uh, meetings, you meet with students. It's a very, um, a very interactive environment. And that's the part that I'm missing right now a little bit, because right now you really have to schedule a meeting and make sure it's just online. So um, hopefully soon that will change and we can go back on campus, but um, I don't have any regrets. I must say it is a very intensive job, like especially when you're in a teaching term and you're coordinating statics and you're teaching um, one section, I mean, on those days, I usually get two to 300 emails a day. Um, aside from all the research that is ongoing, supervising grad students, um, being a member of several committees um, on campus. So um, there is a lot of work that is ongoing and uh, there are definitely times where it's very intense. So, um, but then you also have the times where it is a bit more relaxed, spring, summer, for example, it's you primarily work with um, research uh, undergrad students and your research grad students. Um, then the group is a little bit smaller. It's the email traffic is a little bit less. So um, uh, having this variety going up in, in cycles a little bit in terms of the workload, um, I'm absolutely okay and I don't have any regrets to do this job. So I'm still looking forward for every day to go to work. That's, that's, that's great. That's amazing. Um, and for say students who are currently pursuing an engineering degree, who are thinking of maybe the same route of not going into industry, but um, you know, working in academia, what, do you have any kind of advice for them? Okay, so let's start at the undergrad level. If you really think, okay, becoming um, an academic is, is your long-term goal, then I would recommend you should start working on this goal early on. Uh, it usually means in your uh, undergrad degree or undergrad program, you uh, maybe have um, one or two summer terms where you're a research student. 
So reach out very early to your professors, even if you don't know them. I mean, after the first year, you may know one or two civil profs, but if you know your area or you, you know the reason why you want to go into civil engineering, if you know the area you want to work in or you have interested in, go to the website, see who is um, who are the faculty members we have, contact them, um, talk with them. I mean, nowadays, again, it's more like by email and Zoom meetings. It was a little bit easier a few uh, a year ago when it was uh, on campus, you could just knock on their door and, and directly speak with them. But still make the effort, try to make a connection, see if there's an opportunity for um, a summer research student. That would be your first step to get some experience um, in that area. Um, as you go on, make sure your grades are good and then you would go into graduate school. So either you would pursue a, a master of science degree in your area, or let's say in some cases, you might be able, able to switch directly from your undergrad degree into the um, PhD. Uh, that's something that I did. I went directly from my undergrad in Germany into the PhD program here. Uh, not as common, but it is possible. So um, then you would have to get really eventually your PhD. That is, uh, if you want to become uh, a professor, that is really uh, an absolute must. And while you're at that level, then you need to start publishing papers. You need to get your work out. You need to tell the world, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is where you are the expert. And try to work with a lot of people, go to conferences, present your work, build a network. So um, after you're done with your PhD, you may want to do a postdoc. And uh, at that point, you then have to make a decision if you want to maybe go for a few years in industry, which I personally highly recommend. I think those two years I was in industry was extremely helpful for me to understand, okay, what are the problems that need to be solved in the field? So um, that is something that I would highly encourage. You can still stay very connected with uh, professors and faculty members. And uh, my advice is during that time, still keep publishing, still keep doing a little bit research if possible. And then with having, having your PhD, having your industry experience for a few years, then apply for um, probably assistant professor positions or instructor positions. So right now we have two types of positions here at UFC. The professorial positions are those where it's a mixture of research and teaching. That's basically what I do. That teaching is usually fall and the winter term, research primarily in spring and summer. We also have then the instructor stream, though those are full-time so-called teachers or instructors. Um, their primarily goal is just teaching courses. Um, they, they may have a little bit research or no research at all. Really depending on your preference, what you prefer, if you really want to be more like just an educator, uh, you might be more suitable for um, the instructor stream. If you really want to do research, then definitely it's the professorial stream. And then keep applying um, in terms of the job location. Um, professorial positions are relatively rare compared to let's say um, civil engineering, a structural position. So um, you cannot expect that in your hometown that you will find a um, position as a professor. 
So you would have to apply nationwide at international levels and see where is an opportunity, where is a good fit, and then um, find your way to academia. Yeah, um, I, it's, it's such a relief to hear from you, uh, a professor who, who has done research and who is teaching, uh, that it's okay to kind of cold email props and kind of put yourself out there even though you don't know anything yet. Uh, in first year, I know that me in first year, I was very scared of doing that. And I know a lot of my friends are too, of, you know, knocking on props doors and cold emailing them. So yeah, but on the same, still on the same subject, I want to ask you about your, one of your listed publications um, on your UCalgary profile. Uh, it's called the, Ex the Extraordinary in Decision-Making Myth, Apology, or Opportunity. That was the paper that I read because the title, it was one of the few, a few of the title that I understood um, because the others were very technical. Um, so that was the paper that I read and which I'm glad I did because it inspired me to ask you this question. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the paper is categorized under risk assessment and management. And it basically talks about, and I quote, high consequence, low probability events or perfect storms. And in that paper, you presented three case studies, two of which were the Fukushima nuclear disaster and, the, and then the other was the 2016 Fort McMurray fire. Can you talk about why you co-authored that paper and about your general interest in the idea? Just because uh, I am very intrigued about, you know, the possibility of, of kind of analyzing disasters after they happened and you did that kind of in the, in the paper. Yeah. So officially I do integrity and risk analysis or risk assessment. Now, why do we do risk assessment? It's ultimately to make decisions. And when you, in your personal uh, life from day to day, you make your personal decisions also based on some sort of a qualitative risk assessment. Just for example, if let's say you live in downtown and you need to go on campus and you need to decide in the morning, what time do you get up? So at eight o'clock you have your statics class. So what time do you leave the house or what time do you get up, have your breakfast, get ready and then leave? Um, so everyone comes up with a different answer. There is a, a personal preference in there. Some, they like to be very early. They sit half an hour, 20 minutes early in the classroom, ready to go. And then you have a few that are, might be late. They might be late for reasons that was not their fault because the train was late. So when we make decisions, we think about, okay, what will happen? What will happen if I, let's say, miss the lecture? No? Or think about if you have to be at an exam at eight o'clock in the morning, you probably start a little bit earlier because you wanna eliminate all those possible uncertainties that you have from the time you get up until you arrive at university and you sit down in the classroom. So my work is, if I wanna formalize it, I do formal decision analysis. I really try to draw out a so-called decision tree. What are the options that I have? And then what will happen if, let's say, I make a decision right now to not repair a, let's say, um, a bridge. There's a chance that something will break. That chance will increase as time goes on. 
And then, of course, we also have to deal with the consequences. If it breaks, we have to, we may have fatalities, we may have injuries, um, we have high costs to, to repair it. So this is part of risk assessment is, is this decision analysis. And that was some sort of the driver for this paper, because usually in civil engineering, all our systems, they're very safe. So they categorize into the failure or the probability of failure is very low. But if something happens, if a structure fails, if it partially fails, we can usually, we often we have to deal with very high consequences, even up to fatalities. So we have these rare events that don't happen very often, but when they happen, they are really severe. And this is basically our game that we play in civil engineering. And that's why I'm doing risk analysis to quantify, okay, what is the actual risk? And then based on that, feed this into a formal decision analysis to say, okay, what is the best way forward on what should we do? Now, so it's not just intuitive decision-making, oh, maybe let's do this or that. Really try to come up with a mathematical model, use that model and then it's, it's, it's relatively complex and then make the decisions or advise on the decisions on how we should go forward. Now this process can be very formalized and I've done this in a lot of research papers, but there's also a little bit more to it. Not every model is perfect. We are missing things that are not modeled, that are not included in the model. So as much as we rely on computers and we make this formal decision analysis, we as engineers, we are still uh, able to, to think through and think about possibilities that are not included where we say, okay, the computer is telling me this is the best option to go forward, but I may want to deviate for certain reasons. And that was some sort of the driver behind this paper that you mentioned to write it, because you see there is not much, uh, there is no analysis really involved. There's not the, the hard number crunching that I usually do in the papers. It's more like it was mostly text. It was mostly uh, bringing in aspects that are not considered in a formal analytical decision analysis that led to these extreme events, like you mentioned uh, two or three examples, where the analysis, the actual formal and numerical analysis was done very well, but there were extra events, extra uncertainties that were not considered, and they were basically triggering those um, extreme um, events in the end that in uh, some of the cases led to a lot of fatalities. You know, I knew it was a civil engineer's job to make sure that projects don't burst and bridges don't collapse and buildings don't just fall right out of the sky. But I never knew that there were subject areas dedicated to exactly analyzing kind of this very, very um, high, high risk um, and, and kind of high fatality uh, happenings that can happen in the world, you know, the, the way you did. But, you know, I, I don't really have that much um, knowledge on what really civil engineers do, so I can't really say anything. But um, you, I mean, if let's say you go to civil engineering and you become a structural designer. So you may design a high rise building, you decide on the thickness of the columns, you, you decide the uh, thickness of the slabs. 
and then you may have several hundred people living in this uh, building for let's say 50, 60 or even longer years. So um, I know you're not really directly confronted with that problem, but in your mind, you should be definitely as a civil engineer, you should be aware, okay, this is what is going on. If I decide, okay, this is the column we're going to use that um, the likelihood of failure is very low, but we also have possibly very high consequences. And that's why once you are um, out of your undergrad degree, then you become an engineer in training. So you need to build up a little bit more expertise before you become a professional engineer. And then it's probably even more aware because then you have the signing um, opportunity to sign off on final designs and say, yes, this is okay. I'm signing for it that this design is, is absolutely okay. And now we can build it. And if something happens, hopefully it will never be the case, but then it will come back and say, okay, who signed off on those drawings? Who was the engineer behind this? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. It's about compensating for the things that even might even be very low probability, but is important enough to just take the extra measures and uh, I think you outlined so many of these steps uh, with the Fukushima, with the, you know, the, the uh, height of the walls. Um, it's, it's important to, to take the extra measures so that, you know, things like that don't happen. Yeah, I think it's an it's a engineer's job to, to make sure you consider all the possibilities. Um, so before uh, we wrap it up, I just wanted to ask, do you have any final general advice for incoming engineering students uh, or current engineering students? Um, I have a few. The first one is develop a network as soon as possible. Network with your student um, first year and the same as with the higher years, it can be very intense. You're taking a lot of classes. There are a lot of deadlines. There's a lot of things going on once you're in the middle of the term. Um, those terms are usually fairly intense in terms of the workload that you have. So having a good network, having friends around you that study with you, it really helps to get through this. It makes sure you don't forget anything. You don't forget deadlines. But um, you also see you're not alone you're working together for the same goal. I think that is really important when you start, when you come together from high school, now you're all together in this sometimes massive classrooms. Um, so have a good network. At the same time, and we already touched briefly on that earlier, if you know where you would like to go, is it civil engineering, is it mechanical engineering, or maybe you don't know at all, reach out to the departments, talk to your professors, see what you like. So the earlier you know, okay, this is where I would like to go, the better it is. And as I said, civil engineering is not just statics. It's far more than that. So um, even if you don't like statics, you may really still love civil engineering and that's what you wanna do. So um, please make sure to reach out to your students and develop a network as well as with your uh, instructors. And then the last advice, good time management. You have courses that you really love and you, you can't get enough. 
And then you may have other course where you say, yeah, I'm not really sure about this course. You really, you wish you could remove it and don't have it at all. Unfortunately, that is not possible in first year. So you have to get through all the courses. So make sure those courses you don't like, make sure they don't become a problem. That means you need good time management for every course. Assign a time, have a good schedule. Okay, this is the time that I'm dedicating today for this course to do a certain assignment or quiz or whatever it is. And then make sure you're not really dropping a course. So you work on all uh, courses more or less at the same time. I know that sounds easy in times of when you have midterms and there's a big midterm coming up in one course, you really wanna focusing on that, but uh, make sure to have it as much as possible balanced in terms of all the courses you work on and keep a little bit time to yourself. At some point, all the studying is nice, but uh, work-life balance is very important. So if, if it's Friday afternoon or evening, stop studying for a while, have a good time, have a good time with your friends. And then maybe after a day or two, then go back to studying. That's my advice. That is fantastic advice. Uh, all three of those things are definitely things that have helped me a lot in first year. So I'm really glad uh, you mentioned that. Um, so th thank you so much. Uh, it was a fascinating uh, conversation with you. Uh, Patricia, do you have any uh, closing remarks? Uh, yeah, mostly uh, to, to kind of plug the um, Instagram account, but thank you. This concludes our meeting for today. I want to thank again, Dr. Dan and uh, my co-host Hattain for the wonderful discussion today, as well as our listeners who are tuning in. If you're a prospective student or haven't taken the course, welcome. And I hope we are giving you more insights on first-year engineering courses as a whole. If you're a student who has taken the course, I hope it was a pleasant walk down memory lane, and I hope you learned something new. If you have any feedback or specific questions about first-year engineering courses, please do not hesitate to reach us through our Instagram at engineers. Um, so yeah, I think that that this is this has been the second episode of the Corten series. We will catch you in the next one. Thank you. Bye.